and welcome to the Beauty Chronicles. I'm Meredith Jones, a professor of gender studies who loves popular culture. And I'm Carla, Meredith's trusty sidekick. In these Beauty Chronicles, we talk about all sorts of fascinating and sometimes grotesque things to do with cosmetic surgery, media, popular culture, celebrity, and much more. So, if you're confused by the Kardashians or baffled by Botox, this is the place for you. Last week we spoke about the Brazilian butt lift, and this week it's all about what I call a visual trope, and that is the before-after. Nice. So cosmetic surgery appears in and through media through in many, many different ways, and lots of these are kind of patterns, so they're repeated ways. The actual content might change, but the pattern remains the same. And they're known as visual tropes. So a trope is a kind of pattern. They're some of the most more important visual tropes around cosmetic surgery are, for example, that related to gender. So example, so for example, the models, the people kind of used to sell cosmetic surgery are almost always women. They're almost always young women, and they may or may not have had surgery. They are often just models. Uh, and we'll a, a typical trope around that is that we'll see this beautiful young face kind of marked up with blue dots or blue lines or arrows showing either what's going to happen to that face or what, you know, supposedly should happen to it. And everyone will be able to p- picture, you know, that that kind of uh, image that's really very common. And then we also have the uh, experts of cosmetic surgery who are usually surgeons, usually men, usually older than the young women models. Um, And these men have usually either not had any visible, you know, identifiable cosmetic surgery themselves. Um, Some of them have, of course. And, yeah, they, they appear older, wiser, um, they're often they're often in their offices surrounded by, you know, expensive books or pieces of art or whatever it might be, whereas the models are are often in these sort of uh, you know, like surrounded by lily pads or something like that. So these are two big tropes. Another another really important trope is that is that around celebrities. So very often with celebrities in cosmetic surgery, the the tropes are designed to kind of catch them out, right, to show through paparazzi or studio photos um, or, or even through text in like endless Reddit threads or endless kind of commentary on social media, what they've had to kind of expose them in a way. So that's another set of visual tropes around cosmetic surgery, but they can all be discussed at some other time. But so what we're going to discuss today is the trope of before after. So before after doesn't have to be just around cosmetic surgery or even 
connected with human beauty, right? It can be used to show any sort of transformation. Um, we see it often in home renovation pictures, right? A before after picture. Um, we see it often in pictures that, or see, you know, pairs of pictures that show the passage of time. So cityscapes, for example, sometimes many years apart um, without kind of showing necessarily an in-between. The crucial thing about before and after tropes is that there isn't a between, right? So it's almost like the most important thing about before and after is actually not there, right? The most important thing in many ways is the invisible period between, because of course, without that invisible period, you can't have the after. So before after is not a, about the actual change happening. It's about a set point in time followed immediately by another set point in time. And usually this is um, past and future. And the past, past is always and worse. And the, the past is always, is always worse, unless it's kind of a joke. A like joke. We, yeah, there are kind of joke before afters of, for example, Arnold Schwarzenegger, that, mm. you know, now he's, you know, supposedly a decrepit, old, undesirable body, mm. but before he had this, you know, uh, famous Mr. Universe body. Steroid infused. Allegedly. So the um, it's not the journey that's important here. The journey is not the destination here. Exactly. And, and this destination is, is the destination. That's right. But the destination has no meaning without the previous picture. Mm. So we yeah, want yeah. to see the change, but not the process of change. Mm. So in cosmetic surgery, um, before after is usually used to show quite dramatic difference. Um, and it's kind of a failure. If, if people can't see the difference, then it hasn't done its job. Mm. Right. So the best, because of course, it's usually used for marketing, either explicit or implicit marketing. And perhaps the, you know, the most dramatic before after pictures in cosmetic surgery are of breasts. So small to large or large to small, whatever it might be. And they're the ones that, you know, and of course, people like to look at breasts anyway. So, you know, add in the before after and cosmetic surgery, and it's just, very, very uh, titillating and interesting. But I guess put simply, before and after, is a it's a mode of representation where cosmetic surgery's labour and pain are hidden, hidden away. Um, it's usually focused on one, one body part. So we very rarely see before, after showing complete bodies. So that it'll just be of a face. It might be just of the eyes, just of the nose, just of the lips, just of the neck, and you could go through the whole body. So before after is, is also tied with this other kind of subtrope, I guess, in cosmetic surgery where you don't tend to see full bodies. You, you, you tend to see parts. Um, as I said, it designates past present or perhaps almost past future and we read before pictures from left to right this makes a lot of sense in western cultures because we read our text left to right hmm. uh i have wondered whether 
in cultures, for example, um, more Arabic cultures, some Asian cultures, where the text is read either right to left or um, vertically, right, top to bottom, whether before or after pictures make less sense or even are sometimes presented in a different way. Um, and I have had a quick look and I, I don't think they are. I think the because, probably because before or after pictures originated in Western cultures, they seem to have... Uh, they seem to have passed on into other cultures and and we don't have uh, a different kind of trope appearing there. Just another thing about before after is the before is is very often poorly lit. The person will have no makeup on. They look miserable, you know, and the after will sometimes be better lit, nice makeup, maybe a tan, and the person might be smiling. So, but but as people get more and more savvy about cosmetic surgery, surgeons are realizing that that doesn't really wash with a lot of audiences. So surgeons are more and more presenting, trying to use the exact same lighting expression and angle, et cetera. So that, that is changing. The crucial thing, as I said about before and after, is it shows a kind of painless or seamless change. It has no spatial or temporal context. So it the before after kind of exists in a vortex, in this magical, almost a visual vacuum. There's no background usually to these pictures. The, these body parts just appear you know, it, without a background, without spatial context. They don't even have the spatial context of being connected to the rest of a body. And, of course, they're in a sort of temporal vacuum as well because, you know, we don't have a process happening. We've just got what was old and now what is new. The process is fairly revolting, isn't it? Exactly. I mean, yeah. you described the the what's involved surgically in with the Brazilian butt lift, and it was it's pretty gross. Yeah, exactly. So there's really good reason for the before after. It makes perfect sense if you want to sell something, um, then you you don't want to you don't want your potential customers to associate it with pain, misery, even with cost, right? So so it it makes perfect sense, but um it is it is actually changing. So we are now beginning to get images of the between. Um is that to sell or is are we getting the images because I don't know, there's some way of monetizing the exposure of what goes on in between? Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. So a lot of uh, between images used to be uh, done by, for example, people like me, by, uh, for example, an incredible feminist philosopher called Catherine Pauley Morgan, who wrote one of the earliest and still, I think, one of the best articles about cosmetic surgery. It's called Women and the Knife. It was published in Hypatia in 1990. 
And it's sure it's feminist philosophy, but it's really readable and I would recommend it to anybody. Um, she doesn't, she has pictures of surgical instruments in that article and she encourages readers to imagine those knives cutting into flesh. She's also, we could probably devote a whole episode actually to, to that article because it's pretty amazing. She she predicted some things to do with cosmetic surgery that came true. Unfortunately, they came true in really grim ways, not in the utopic ways that she imagined. So Catherine Pauling Morgan, fantastic feminist philosopher. So yeah, we've we've got this change now happening. Um, it began to happen through the 2000s with television, with shows like Extreme Makeover, which was one of the first. It ran from 2002 to 2007, and it showed head-to-toe transformations of, you know, real people. Uh, it was a reality TV show. And it featured actual operations, or at least parts of them. It didn't shy away from gruesome aspects. It also featured um, recovery time, uh, dwelled quite a lot on on pain and on recovery. And then it it was closely followed or kind of paralleled shows like The Swan, which was really extraordinary because The Swan was an extreme makeover show, but also included the psychology of the participants. So that was really extraordinary, kind of lining up the beauty within with with the beauty without. And that we could do another whole podcast on that notion. We also had um, shows like I Want a Famous Face, botched, which I think is still going, and many, many others that, you know, that these have all been followed. But these were the the first ones uh, that ran through the 2000s. You know, the sort of the real, reality TV shows. Yeah, they were. So uh, it was also Nip Tuck, which was a drama. Exactly. Yes. Nip Tuck. Um, what was the famous saying of Nip, Nip Tuck? It was something like, why spend 20 years on the psychiatrist couch when you could spend two hours on the cosmetic surgeons? Is it a bench? A table, yeah. So these shows through the 2000s brought... Were they they gory? Like did they really show everything? They did. Of course they were edited. To the extent that they were able to. Exactly. And I think once I did a little timing and I think the actual operations comprised, you know, something like less than 4% of the whole show, Mm. but they were gory enough and they were in primetime TV. They had huge audiences. Um, And really what they did was they, in many ways, demystified cosmetic surgery for a whole series of audiences. And while they probably put a lot of people off, in the long run, I think they led to more and more TV shows like this. Now to a whole social media world that shows the gruesome aspects of cosmetic surgery and has really normalized it, normalized the between 
as being something kind of ordinary, at least something that we're not unused to seeing. Yeah. Has it but I wonder if that's sort of a also a consequence of like lots of other TV shows that normalize things that were otherwise hidden. There's a British show set in a hospital in Southampton in a maternity ward called One Born Every Minute, which showed aspects of giving birth of that process. Like it followed sort of various people about to have babies and it would show parts of the labor process, which were kind of, to me, made me think that if you saw that you'd never want to have a child. So I think there's been a lot, I think the kind of increase of reality TV created lots of programs that demystified things that were otherwise. That had otherwise been hidden. Culture. Otherwise had been culturally intentionally hidden. Mm. I guess with, with cosmetic surgery stuff, I wonder if showing the, that there's some kind of erotics in seeing the process, you know, like there's some kind of slightly pornographic um, pleasure in consuming the grotesque. I think you're exactly right, Carla, you know, on two fronts that, yes, these, let's call them shows, even whether they're social media or television, on the one hand, yes, they're part of another genre or another set of genres that demystifies things that used to be secret. But I think what you've said about it being kind of pornographic is absolutely true. Maybe there is a genre called, maybe there should be a genre called cosmetic surgery porn because porn, of course, is all about, well, titillation, obviously, but seeing what we're not meant to see. Yeah. And, I mean, there's also kind of like a with sort of S&M stuff, like there is something about the kind of um, erotics of torture and, you know, that kind of stuff that maybe watching people getting surgery is a bit, bleeds into that a little bit. I don't know. I think you're right. I think you are right. And it's it's usually men operating on women. It's usually young women lying down, being cut open, being punished in a way. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting. There's a there's a wonderful writer called Elizabeth Bronfen who's written about the figure of the dead body in art, the beautiful dead woman in art who might be Ophelia or, um, oh, you know, often yeah. Ophelia, I can't think of the others, and about how that figure is, I, I doubt that Bronfen uses the word pornographic, but, but that that figure is meant to titillate. It's a completely passive figure. Um, yeah, I, I, I want to think about this more, Carla, about cosmetic surgery's relations to BDSM. I think it's really, really important. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, just, it just and then at the end of these shows, is there like the is there, there's still the before and after? Like you see the process, and is the after always better than the before? Like, do you see the healing and the duh, and the finally you get to see the end product? Yeah, exactly. So. The before after has in no way been subsumed or replaced right. by the between. The the before after is still paramount, uh, still absolutely crucial. So sure, you've seen a bit of gore, you've gone on the journey with let's call them the it's patient. The hero's journey. It's the fucking hero's journey as well. I agree. I'm fucking, I'm fucking over the yes. hero's journey. The person's on a quest, so they're shown as they they have to be shown first as deserving. So that's mm. that was a really big thing about Extreme Makeover and the Swan was the person was not only hideously ugly, you know, obviously I'm got that in inverted commas, but they were also deserving. So they might have been, for example, a police officer who'd been injured, or they were a mother who'd been widowed. Um, they'd had they were deserving because they'd had something bad happen to them. And, and crucially, they were a, a really hardworking, worthy American citizen mm-hmm. um, who just was down on their, on their luck. Yeah, so they were someone that the audience could care about. Exactly. And it was all framed in such a way that, that we would care about them. We then saw them going on this journey, perhaps a, a mixture of a physical and a psychological journey, and then we see them emerging triumphant at the end, having had the help of these kind of heroes in the form of the cosmetic surgeons, but also the psychologists, the makeup artists, the hairdressers as well, who I guess were kind, you know, the, the cosmetic surgeon takes the role of the prince who kisses Sleeping Beauty or kisses Snow White in order to bring her out of her long sleep. Mm. Um you know that this this trope of before and after, and and you know with its kind of processual processual in between, is very connected to those kind of magic moments of the the Snow White or the Sleeping Beauty. She's weak, she's helpless beforehand. She's exiled. You know, maybe maybe. Uh, Symbolically, she's kind of exiled from herself, from her own uh, self-knowledge, from her own um, self-esteem by being put to sleep or falling asleep and then magically awakened by this prince. She wakes up transformed. She becomes a queen. She's in power. She's a woman, you know, Sometimes, you know, literally, visually, she's suddenly got curves and breasts and whatever it is. She's more feminine, inverted commas, and she she moves into her power. So that's what Snow White and Sleeping Beauty do in those in those fairy tales and those myths. And that's still the story around lots of cosmetic surgery. In the extreme makeover show, was it only women who would get the the work done 
I've mixed up Extreme Makeover and The Swan in my head. Or whichever the one. But I the, think the, both, the, char- the characters were worthy. You said like a police person who'd well, been they injured. Were, in, in all of them, they're worthy. Um, certainly there were men. I remember a particular man. Uh, I can't remember if it was Extreme Makeover or The Swan. And the reason I remember him is that in these shows, there's a reveal to family at the end. And actually, I'll come back to a tragic story around Extreme Makeover um, about that family involvement. But in in these stories, there's an end reveal where the person, the person's new self is shown uh, some, you know, to themselves in the mirror, but also to their family or to their loved ones. And I remember this man in particular because he'd had, well, they all have quite dramatic transformations. He'd had dramatic transformations of his face and his body, but he had a young daughter and she was young, like less than 10. And he did not want to reveal this dramatic new self to her all of a sudden because it could have upset her. And I think the psychologist on the show agreed or maybe even suggested this. So his reveal to her was done in a darkened room. I've always remembered it because this little girl got to hear her dad's voice in the dark. The idea was that she would know it was him, that he hadn't changed, that he was still, you know, her same dad, uh, and that she wouldn't have that terrible shock of seeing him differently. And I think one of the reasons I've really remembered that is because that little girl probably thought he was beautiful before he went on the show, right? So for her, maybe seeing the reveal would have been horrible. You know, she would have thought, who is this person? I don't recognize them. I don't like them. And that's not what we're meant to do for reveals. We're meant to see this amazing improvement and congratulate the person. And it just, the fact that for a child it was the opposite kind of proves to me that nothing about this is innate. We've learned, you know, we've been taught that this is the way to react to this kind of change. I'm thinking about the other, those other shows of like transformation, like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and even, you know, the sort of house makeovers. Like, yeah. Well, one of them's called Extreme Makeover. So Extreme Makeover actually went from being about cosmetic surgery to having a kind of offshoot that then I think became much more successful than the cosmetic surgery one that was called Home Renovation. Okay. That extreme makeover, home renovation. Right, yeah. Yeah. They're all all Snow White stories. They are all Snow White stories, yes. The, The tragic one connected to extreme makeover and in fact um connected to the ending of the show the 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 decommissioning of the show if you like in 2007 was um a woman called Delise McGee who applied to the show went to all of the kind of uh pre-production meetings was filmed um her family was filmed and, of course, she was filmed saying how unhappy she was with her look, with everything, blah, blah, blah. I assume she was very deserving. I don't know what her story was. 
her family were filmed um, and at first said they didn't think there was anything wrong with her, that they loved her just the way she was, but the producers encouraged members of her family as they, as is part of their job, they encouraged them to say, oh, but aren't there these things wrong with her and wouldn't she look better if and wouldn't she feel better about herself if. And the family joined in. They did what was basically being asked of them. Uh, Delise McGee overheard all of this. I don't know if she was meant to overhear it. Um, And so she knew what they'd all said about her. Then um, her participation in the actual program was cancelled because of scheduling or, or something like that. And so basically they all just had to go home um and live she, with she she didn't get the surgery she didn't get anything she was not on the show um and her sister i believe it was her sister kelly um actually died of an overdose not long afterwards and it was very much connected to the guilt that kelly had felt um about what she'd said about her sister uh, that that did lead to that program being cancelled. Um, so, yeah, maybe there were still some ethics back in 2007 around this stuff. Uh, I don't know if, if that would mm-hmm. even happen now. Yeah, so Extreme Makeover Cosmetic Surgery, you know, came to a very unhappy end really. Um, I also, there's an amazing piece written by a journalist, I think it was a New York Times journalist, who sat on a plane coincidentally next to someone who was going off for her extreme makeover or maybe it was the swan kind of audition. Mm. And this person said to this journalist, I don't care what they do to me. They can do whatever they want. They can change my face, my body, my life, my hair, my anything I'm here for the free dental because I can't afford dental because I live in the United States. I don't have, you know, whatever insurance I need to get dental. I've got all these rotten teeth. There's no way I can ever pay for it myself. So that's why I've applied to go onto the show. Mm. So we also need. I feel like every reality TV show. Anyone who's agreeing to be on that show is doing it. It's somewhere they think that their participation is going to kind of bring about some kind of um, financial opportunity. Yes, we've almost got serial serial offenders in some reality TV. Like often you'll hear, oh, this person or that person who was on The Bachelorette actually was on a different reality TV show earlier. So there are people trying to use these platforms to set careers up. Yeah. And they they perhaps fall into a little bit of a different category to the person who just needs their teeth fixed. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. But they're they're sort of trying to trying to make money. Mm, absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Whether it's for dental work or yeah, yeah. to build their brand so that they can afford better dental work. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of making money, Mm. uh, 
we should talk a little bit about a subject that I think I know less about actually than the television, but it's social media and the way that before, after and the between appear on social media. Um, Particularly on social media, I think that have moving image, moving images, because in a way before, after makes less sense if the images are moving. We still see it. You know, we still see it a lot, people speaking to camera with their before faces and then their after faces and not seeing anything in between. But we're also seeing between happening on on social media. And I think there are two main groups. They're both fascinating. One is influencers um, and the line between a participant, let's say, and an and an influencer is obviously blurry. You know, when does someone move into being able to make money from this stuff? Uh, when are they just talking about, you know, their nose job to maybe an audience of 10 or 20? And when do they become a, a cosmetic surgery influencer who's perhaps talking to millions? Um you know, that this happens for some people. Uh, we do know that cosmetic surgery influencers are major power brokers now in the cosmetic surgery world. So they're just as important as surgeons. And we're seeing a re- really interesting blurring too between influencers and surgeons. We're seeing surgeons become influencers. We're not seeing influencers become surgeons yet. Maybe that'll happen. Someone would have to study for a long time. Um, but we're seeing surgeons, for example, referring to influencers in in their own videos and influencers referring to surgeons, perhaps money changing hands, who knows, either over or under the table, um, so to speak. Uh, and certainly not that divide that there once would have been a kind of a divide of disgust where an old fashioned public uh, sorry an old fashioned cosmetic surgeon might have been really appalled by the idea of actually working with or even talking to um a, someone who's had some cosmetic surgery and is talking about it um online but now we're really seeing them working together um, so there are a whole lot of TikTok and YouTube videos now that show the between. Um, they might be in the form of actual surgeons live streaming their operations. There is a really uh, famous one. She was known as Dr. Roxy, her real name, Catherine Roxanne Graw or Grawe, Graw, I think, She's actually had her medical license revoked um, back in, well, it was suspended back in 2002 and then revoked afterwards. So she'll never be able to practice again in the state of Ohio, whether that will apply to other places, I don't know. And that's because during a live stream TikTok of a liposuction, she perforated someone's intestine. Um, and that is, yeah, that's known as endorotomy and really is, a pa- according to other cosmetic surgeons who've got on to TikTok to explain it, it's something that 
shouldn't happen. Maybe it did happen because she was working at the wrong angle because she actually was dancing while doing operations and that was part of her her shtick. Uh, and it's, she's not the only one, by the way. Um, yeah, so Isn't she... there's some kind of legal protection that you know, doctor-patient confidentiality that would would um, prohibit the live streaming of an operation? I guess the patient agrees to it. Yeah, the patients have signed away some rights and right. my guess is that in return they get a bit of a discount. A discount. Yeah, yeah. whether you could ever really know that, I don't know. Mm. Um, yeah, but of, of course they, you know, they, they sign away rights and they must get something in return. Maybe it is just a bit of fame. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. Um, another, of course, we're seeing a lot of patients live streaming. They can't live stream during, during their operation because they're unconscious, but they'll live stream before and after. Um, and in fact, there's a famous one of those connected to Dr. Roxy. This, this person's operation was done, I think the just the day before Dr. Roxy was actually, um, you know, disbarred or whatever you call it. Um, and she is called, what's her call? She's called Off-Grid Dreamer. And um, Not she, totally Off-Grid Dreamer. She's called Off-Grid off Dreamer, all one word. And she live streamed an infection that she got uh, from Dr. You know, well, look, I don't know if, she didn't get the infection from Dr. Roxy, but the infection was associated with the operation she had with Dr. Roxy the day the day before Dr. Roxy's license was suspended. Um, so that's an interesting couple of kind of sets of videos to look at. Both Dr. Rox Dr. Roxy's have all been removed now from TikTok, but you can still find recordings of the recordings, of, of course. Yeah. Um and then at the other end of the spectrum, you know, you've so you've got these cosmetic surgeons busy doing stuff like Dr. Roxy, and at the other end of the spectrum, surgeons who are really uh, trying to educate um, or just trying to have fun. Um, a very popular one is Dr. Yun, Anthony Yun, uh, who calls himself America's holistic plastic surgeon and seems to just be having fun. He does reactions. He does little explanations. Um, he presents as sensible, as cute, as funny, and as trustworthy, partly because people might send him photos of themselves saying, uh, you know, I'm 17, I have hooded, hooded eyes, what can I do? Please help me. And he just writes back, you're beautiful the way you are, don't do anything. So that endears him to an audience. But of course, it's also great marketing. You know, it's great marketing. So, yeah, there's a, a whole spectrum of surgeons working on this, a whole spectrum of um, of influences and of patients showing their procedures, but always, always, always still with this magical frame of the before and after where something ugly turns into something beautiful. And that is where before and after maintains its power, uh, maintains its power for all of us. Uh, it's still the way that the desire for cosmetic surgery works. We want beauty to be magical. We don't want to work for it, even though 
if we show that we've worked for it, there are benefits. So in, so influencers who show that they've worked for it, either by saying they've always wanted it, they were bullied at school for whatever body part it is, they've saved up for it, uh, and then they show that they've gone through pain for it, they've got bandages, they've got bruises, they've got sutures, they might have an infection, then the end result that's always beautiful, right? Nobody ever says, I don't like it. The end result can be understood by the audience to have been deserved. So the person is less likely then to be attacked as you're vain, you're narcissistic, you wasted money, whatever. Uh, it It doesn't remove, but it diminishes that sort of attack around yeah. cosmetic surgery. So those attacks still, this like that moral framework still exists? Absolutely, yes. If you read comments after anything, you know, on, on YouTube, on TikTok, on, you know, on whatever it might be, you'll see a huge amount of haters Um and you, of course, haters have a very specific kind of psychology that, you know, that it's, well, I can't even begin to understand myself, but people have looked into it. And they'll say stuff like, the nicest thing they'll say is, you looked better before. Uh, but, they, you know, it can get a lot worse. And it's very often attacks on women. Well, you know, it's very often women. Putting, putting this sort of social media product out there. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's maybe women getting the surgery. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Women, women are still, still make up. I mean, it, it depends what kind of stats you look at, but women, you know, still make up the vast majority of cosmetic surgery cases. Those, those stats do change dramatically if you count hair transplants as cosmetic surgery. Yeah, I've said this before. Yeah. If if we counted hair transplants, there'd be a lot more, a lot more men. Um, are there are there people that you are there any like doctors you'd want to talk to? Like people who who produce this social media content that you'd be interested in having a conversation with? Oh yes, I'd love to have a chat with some of them. Maybe I'll seek some out for, for my new edition of the book. Seek, find find one who's in London. There'll be there'll be plenty, and and go and talk to them, talk to him. It'll probably be a him. Yeah, good idea. Um. Yeah. One thing I have noticed about cosmetic surgeons and written about in the past is they are kind of weirdos in the medical world. Allegedly, allegedly they are weirdos. Yes because they think of themselves as artists. So many of them, you know, are actual painters, sculptors, musicians, and they'll often feature their own art in their offices or in their marketing. Um, There was one years ago who always had a cello with him and, oh, my God. Anyway, um, they fancy themselves as artists rather than as surgical technicians. so, yeah, so I think that that kind of feeds into an egoism 
in cosmetic surgery that perhaps exists less in other surgical specialties. And yeah, I, yeah. maybe they're more keen to perform for camera, to uh, put on a show, to, and maybe they're also of a particular type that doesn't want to be invisible. They yeah. want to I be mean, famous. surgeons, yeah, surgeons are notoriously egotistical. Mm, like, mm. I know from friends who work in medicine that, um, the ego required to be a surgeon is is fairly, you know, it needs to be fairly robust um, and yeah. it tends to attract a particular sort of personality. Um, I guess it's such a high pressure and invasive type of medicine. But, yeah, I think it's interesting to think about the kind of surgeon that's, that wants to do cosmetic surgery Well, it, because it, it, is, it is about appearances, how things look rather than how things work. Exactly, yes. And in fact, a lot of cosmetic surgery stops things from working the way they should. So it it does kind of damage to capacity whilst enhancing uh, visuality. So it almost, some cosmetic surgery does the opposite of what medicine is meant to do, which is first do no harm, right? But of course, that's all justified through the psychological, yeah. Yeah, so I guess the first do no harm is the reason that there has to be this kind of moral justification for why the surgery needs to take place. Exactly. It needs to take place because you can't live with yourself with that nose or that those ears or that lack of hair. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is causing more harm than... Mm. Mm repairing it it's right yeah oh okay. my was God. there anything else that you wanted to mention i don't think so i'm sort of looking through my notes is there anything you think that i haven't we haven't discussed we've kind of got through it all i think so i to be honest i didn't read the whole document oh, well the other thing because you sent it so last minute yeah i'm sorry about that that's fine um, everything's last minute for me. Yeah. That's um, fine. I'd be late for my own cosmetic surgery operation, I guess. And then I'd miss out on it. You'd miss out and uh, have to live with, uh, with, um, with the consequences, mm. with the hideous wrinkles. Um, the only other thing is that I wanted to say that I did the bulk of my interviews of cosmetic surgery recipients in the early 2000s and then another whole bunch of them in uh, about 10 years later. And certainly those people that I interviewed early on, for, for many of them, actually, I was the only person they'd ever spoken to about their cosmetic surgery, apart from um, their surgeon. There was even one woman who'd had breast implants and had never discussed them with her children and uh, never discussed them with her new husband. She'd got that new husband post-breast implants. Um, I don't think there must that must still happen. That must still be part of it, that secrecy. But I think a lot of the stigma around have, having cosmetic surgery is gone. It's there are parts, there are parts of having cosmetic surgery now that are 
connected with status. So your people are actually proud of having had it. And along with that comes an openness to talk about it before, during, and after. So possibly all of those people I interviewed back in the early 2000s, if they were having it now, they'd be on TikTok. Um, and it would be far less of a relief for them to be interviewed by me. So this was an interesting thing in the early 2000s. For some of these people, it was a big relief to have a someone really interested and non-judgmental about why and how they'd had this thing done. Um, so maybe Will you be talking to people now. Before? Yeah, I'm going to interview a few new people. Yeah, yeah. So almost with social media, there's no need to like what yeah, I was, was going to. I want to interview them about why have you put this on social media? Yeah, yeah. Because mm. there's so much content there that you probably don't need to sort of interview as many participants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In many ways, the secrecy is ended. But we're now getting the secrecy in it through 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 specific new new genres. Yeah, mm. and there's always, there always has to be a happy ending. Well, on that note, shall we bring about a happy ending? Sure. Nice to, to nice to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you. I've not fully written my paper. I'm trying to present a paper about the Kardashians and their American citizenship and how that ties in with their constructions of beauty and also, weirdly, their Christianity. And don't ask me any more about it because I've not, I'm right in the middle and I can't even think properly about it. God, it sounds like a lot. It's full on. Yeah, okay, I won't. I won't. But I, I, I won't. I would like to know what their American citizenship has to do with it. But I guess maybe um, once you've written the paper, I can ask you. Yeah, we can do a thing about that. Okay. <laughs>